John McKay and another session with a podcast and an interesting one I think today um, talking about uh, extraction and talking about different organic chemistry and the chemistry of cannabis and the different things that are are um, timely and so it's called uh, extracting the best from every day with Dr. John McKay and today I'm joined with with Dr. Bennett and from Prescott uh, Logic Technologies, and welcome. Thank you very much, John. Appreciate it. Uh, We've known each other a long time, but yeah, um, and uh, and crossed our paths so many times that we suddenly see ourselves in a hallway sometime and go, "Oh, oh, you're here." You know, I, I didn't know you were here and stuff, and uh, it's been good fun. Um, but it gives me a, a chance to talk with you today and find out a little bit about what you are currently doing and a little bit more about some of the things that uh, are topical. So with that, I, I throw it back over to you to tell us a, a little bit about what your company does and uh, a little bit about yourself, I guess. Absolutely. Um, so Prescott Logic, I started originally in 2014 in Colorado um, at the time. Uh, was to make a transdermal patch, which I did pretty quickly and pretty effectively. And uh, truthfully, it was the beginning of a, a product development uh, path that uh, still is in a lockbox and, and uh, waiting to be fully developed, but I have some good formulations with that. So, um, but as fate would have it, I, I was doing a postdoc for my seventh year and uh, <laughs> at the University of Colorado Medical School, Anschutz. And um, I had an opportunity to develop something and you know, was sort of awakened to how warm companies were um, to inventors. Obviously they wanna be on the patents, but uh, I could get a lot of material for free, which I didn't, I didn't know as an academic. Um, anyway, got to the, the patch developed and it started uh, giving me some visibility in Colorado. Um, and I very quickly realized that there wasn't necessarily a dearth, but almost an absence of, of uh, you know, quality medical and scientific thinking um, in the space. And um, I saw more of a more of an opportunity than just, you know, launching a patch, I guess. And I became the scientific director of Evo Lab uh, for a couple of years was there and then worked for a company called Merican in uh, Canada, got some experience there, uh, revitalized Prescott in the US and started Prescott Logic uh, also, in, also in Canada. Pardon me on the lights. Um, and so my background is I'm an academic scientist, uh, PhD molecular biologist with uh, emphasis in neurodegeneration opiate receptors and melanoma, and I'm a bench to clinic researcher. So analytical chemistry to cell culture, to trans, translational animal models, usually mice or rats, to uh, preclinical and clinical studies and actually have a, a drug patented from, uh, from my studies with, with my team, of course, that's made by Sanofi that we repurposed and is in a few different phase two clinical trials for Alzheimer's disease. So had a uh, successful, for lack of a better term, scientific career, uh, but was very, very excited to uh, be in Colorado uh, in 2013 at the time that, that things were, were starting up. So, yeah, some, so Colorado to now Chicago? Grew up in Chicago. Uh, most of the schooling was Florida, uh, then moved to Colorado and uh, been back in Chicago about five years start a family yeah so, yeah, so that's a an interesting a transition because uh in 2013 2014 in in uh, colorado there was a 
there was a, um, an increase in the interest and then very few laboratories that were moving towards uh, some of the scientific uh, processes that had been placed as well as analytical testing. There were very few of those available even early on. And I think uh, there were probably a handful of companies that were looking at besides just uh, you know extraction um, for getting uh, products that were in an oil form and then transforming into something else was was an early early stage and so you were in that stage early on so i've always thought that an organic chemist is the most amazing chemist on the planet because we had to know everything but i would say that on your side you you trumped that uh rather significantly i i appreciate that i don't know if it's true i think i've had to um as a biochemist go back and and relearn a lot of things I regret not paying closer attention to as, a, as, as I had the opportunity in, in organic and other things. But can, cannabis has been a great opportunity to be an applied scientist, which really is, is what excites me more than anything. And I would have never have known that if I was you know, still in academia. Yeah, so as you're looking at that process and you see some of the things that, that interest me and, and, uh, and, the, and the things that you're doing are taking the compounds and then tracing them through the metabolism of a organism. Correct, so, so, so it's, it's kind of bimodal. And I should, I should add what, what Prescott does is sell um, top-end purpose-built fractional distillation equipment specifically for the hemp and cannabis space. That's um, we, we sort of evolved into that while I was doing product development, started my own company. I, I realized that there, that there, there, people had a lot to learn in the processing world, uh, to, to be able to get to a patch, uh, at the time, a lot just had extracted oil. And so, um, I was reselling equipment and then my current partner, uh, pilotist out of Germany, um, I went to visit them. They came out on day, day two with a bunch of drawings and had my logo and made me OEM. So. So we're, we're quite proud of our distillation equipment just to, to tie off what, what Prescott does. Sorry, I'd be remiss not to finish that off. Yeah, it would be, I guess. So, so as you're moving through um, different phases of distillation, which is now, now you're looking at vapor pressures and you're looking at solubility and separation and seeing that. So as I've always told people, there's, there's, a, there's a reason why if you go past Richmond, California, or you go past Commerce City and outside of Denver, that they have very large stacks. And being able to do that precisely and accurately um, is an art. I mean, it's not just putting a couple pieces of glass together and a little bit of cold water in the middle. So there's more to it than that? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and um, especially for a tricky matrix like, like cannabis, but um, uh, our, I, I appreciate that. Our systems are, are vertical. Um, we get a couple complaints, but every other industry, they are vertical, uh, to run the most efficiently and not, you know, pumped up into the still, but, uh, I digress. Um, but that, that being said, um, you know, distillation is, a, you know, has, has, has changed a bit as, as you know, cannabis, cannabis evolves, which is fun. Um, it's, it's sort of, uh, I, I like to call it a, a standardization step because you're really taking something that is full spectrum has quality like that's good oil and really just whacking out the fraction that you want ripping away the personality and saying this is the quantity of cannabinoids that you have um but you know it's it's less of a craft product uh, admittedly but but definitely um standardized products necessary for you know gummies and patches and capsules and every other thing that you're making. Um, and furthermore, if, if, if you are interested in cannabinoids, plural, uh, beyond THC and CBD, um, it's the, the right starting material for preparative chromatography as opposed to crude oil. Um, so there's, there's value to distillation in general processing and also for, for finished product. It does bring to mind to me, um, it was, um... I'd read a paper, and maybe you've read this too, and I, I can't remember the actual references. I'll have to find it after the uh, podcast. It was, uh, it was around 1909 
the um, first distillation was described in the scientific journals. Fractional distillation, okay, not distillation, fractional distillation, where being able to separate them a couple of compounds from each other. And it was, I believe it, I'm gonna go out of the limb. I believe he was from MIT and he was the, was uh, called the um, modern um, father of chemical engineering. And so I, I found that paper, which, you know, I, I didn't realize that, that it was not that old. I mean, it's not that old. I mean, 1909 is not not that long ago at all. I had a grandmother that died in 19, great-grandmother died in 1984, who was 107. So born in 1876, she saw everything, the entire industrial revolution and everything like that. So no, 1909 is, you know, definitely uh, a couple of generations ago in my family. Yeah, that's, uh, well, well, be interesting to see what happens in 20, uh, 2052 when you're still working. Well, so, <laughs> interestingly, I think, you know, it's one of those techniques that won't change a whole lot. Um, a lot of people uh, in the cannabis space think something's new all the time. And as you and I both know, it's nothing's new in this space at all, except the cannabis itself and our, our interpretation of it, all of these things have been used in many other industries and, and stuff like that, so. So speaking of that, do, do you see yourself branching out into other um, spaces besides just the, uh, the cannabis market itself? Absolutely, um, had a call today with a group that, I mean, I've had numerous calls, but a group that I'm, I'm gonna be starting another company on with, with psilocybin in particular. Um, a couple of interesting twists to what we're doing, but um, at the end of the day, uh, I extract, I formulate, so that's no different with psilocybin. Um, I think that there's going to be much more of a push for research, which is something that everyone always talked about in the beginning of cannabis, and no one really did, uh, minus a few groups. I think it was just to get my interest. Um, but I think with, with psilocybin, I really think that there's a lot that's unknown. I think there's a, it's a stronger chemical. Um, I think there's going to be more product liability, stuff like that. But as far as, you know, what I have seen for depression, what I've seen for PTS, uh, and what I've seen for traumatic brain injury for TBI is just kind of mind blowing. Uh, so to again, rule out something as an effective therapy, because it's been used a different way historically, um, I, I think that that pattern reappears here. Yeah, I think it. I think it does too, and I think it goes back through and goes um, through the purification process as well as the typical path for a natural product is to take a natural product, find out what people, the indigenous, you know, a population is using it for, and then from there, trying to find out which compounds are actually active, which ones are, are contributing either by deactivating or activating some process. And then from there, isolating those and then deciding which, which parts are uh, efficacious. And, and, um, and, and that's the pathway that sort of cannabis sort of leapfrogged over and not allowed. The I think there's two, there's two, there's sort of the top-down approach where you, like you're describing, where you take something like crude oil and dump it on cells. And then there's the, the bottom up where you take pure THC and put it on cells, THC and CBD and put it on cells and sort of recreate things um, or in mice or in people uh, in order to, to uh, you know, get more basic data on, on um, mechanism and effectual effectiveness. So when you're looking at that, and I, uh, I just bring it up as a, as a topic, and that is as far as the uh, receptor sites and having a lotion on a, on a, on a skin epidural layer or having something that goes under your tongue or having something that's um, IV injected, as you're looking at those and, and through your experience as a biochemist, where's all that... Uh, Where's that fall into? Well, um, very loaded question on your part, but um, <laughs> uh, I, um, 
you know, I, I think that it, it falls into the, you know, not truly proven yet and not proven with the, you know, the means that you and I, you know, are, are used to seeing things proven with. And I, it doesn't necessarily have to be prohibitively expensive clinical trials, but I, I just think that we're dealing with a lot of anecdotal uh, anecdotal evidence and we're dealing with populations that are telling us, hey, I have less pain. So like we're going back through and saying, well, what components could it be? Is it THC? Is it CBD? And, you know, it's just kind of a, it's kind of a maelstrom, uh, if you will, from a research standpoint. Uh, I'm not sure if that answers your question though. I think it does. I think, uh, and you provide, in some respects, the company and yourself provide some of the compounds that would be used in that in that research as well as instrumentation so certainly i mean instrumentation um you know experience uh, often you know we're we're around for more than uh just an equipment sale um you know i i like to say deconstruction and reconstruction um we're around for breaking it down into purified compounds and then mindfully reassembling those into a delivery mechanism um, to be to be utilized in, in, in whatever manner we see fit. But um, going back to your question about maybe a cream and some of these things, I think I think that you know, or a, a sublingual tablet, you know, I think what's really missing for me is the, the, the pharmacokinetic data um, that says, hey, this is our fizzy drink. This is everybody else's fizzy drink, and here's where ours kicks in faster. And even if I saw data like that, I don't know how much I, I buy it because we've got pharmacogenomic data that says that you and I could have 200 fold differences in how we interpret drugs of any sort, let alone cannabis. So, you know, I just think it's, it's at the same time, I would, I would, you know, what we understand scientifically and medically, I would never want to naysay someone that said something worked for them, whether right. that was, whether that was real or imagined, if someone says this works, it's a doctor's responsibility to, to nod their head and say, okay, well, that's, that's great that you have something. It's not, no one really cares in that case with, with chronic pain or, or with PTS or some of these things that are, that are relatively untreated. No one really cares about the mechanism. So we can sit here and dissect and whittle away all we want, but people can go buy these things pretty much over the counter. Um, and treat themselves. Yeah, when I'm seeing um, the same way that I go when I treat myself, when I'm in a drugstore and I look at the 7,000 different um, choices for toothpaste, and, you know, do I want to whiten my teeth or do I want to super whiten my teeth? Do I want to have fluoride? Do I not want to have fluoride? Do I, do I want to use a left-handed toothbrush, right-handed toothbrush? Am I going to use water pick? Am I going to use floss? What kind of floss am I going to use? And that's just the toothpaste, you know, and that's not even deciding what I'm going to have. So when I'm, when I'm looking at that, I think that each one of those processes comes in place and, and speaks to what we do as, as Americans, certainly because I'm, I'm more used to Americans. I see them almost every day. And so, uh, and watch them in the drugstores. But that brings me to even you know, some of the things that, that people can purchase currently on the market today that as the market started off with 2013, 2014, you would think that we had just discovered, you know, Delta 9. I do remember in early 2014, the first time I saw Delta 8. And I know exactly where I was. I was actually over in Arveda, Arvada, Arveda, Arvada, methyl, methyl. And so and it was there that I was seeing a hump on the side of a Delta nine peak. And I'm sitting there going, what's, you know, and I, I explored it more and then did orthogonal chromatography. There's a shock to you. I did chromatography, orthogonal chromatography and, and saw very clearly that it was a separate peak. Now, what was it? And the, at the time, my concern was that the Delta nine was being over rated or you know over the potency was uh, too high for what it should have been and that the delta eight was therefore 
something was coming through the process. And so I was on the other side of saying that you're, you're showing too much delta nine, you have something else in there, it's called delta eight, it's not as potent. And so you're mislabeling your delta nine. And now, now we've gone 180 the other direction and people making delta eight. And, uh, and, and I have my opinion on that one. And that is that when delta eight comes from the biosynthesized Delta nine, it's in the right enantiomeric form. It comes in as minus trans delta eight. It doesn't come in as the other three possible enantiomers. However, when you do bring it from another product, CBD, for example, and you close the ring, you now have multiple products that can be derived from that very simple reaction. Mm -hmm. So people are buying this. And, and for me, if I do a quick cost analysis just in the top of my brain, it just seems like the, the COM, the cost of manufacturing, doesn't allow me to get to the product uh, suggested manufacturing pricing. It just seems too low. And uh, too many other components, compound, compounds in that mixture. Yeah, I mean, there's there's no there's no standard of, of quality. So, you know, we, you know, we have a very, we have a solvent free, very clean uh, method of, of isomerizing from, uh, from CBD to, um, to Delta eight, um, you know, no residual solvents, nothing like that. Um, but at the end of the day, we're also left to the testing companies to use HPLC to determine the actual concentrations of these of these things, which doesn't adequately resolve those two. Um, obviously, NMR uh, very clearly resolves them, but but even GCMS does a pretty good job, um, almost an order of magnitude better than HPLC. You'll see a 10% D9 go away and become a fraction of a percent when you go to GC. So um, you know, there's 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 that to contend with. But the biggest problem is that that nobody cares about having a compliant, clean product. Everybody just wants the cheapest stuff. Um, people want it to be clear, even though it oxidizes in short order and turns all sorts of colors. Um, the market demands it, and um, you know it's a, it's a race to the bottom. And you know until there's any regulation or quality control or you know, a gas station that says, you know, I, I, I'm afraid of hurting people. Um, you know, I think we have sort of an overlap of, you know, is Delta 8 good or bad? I mean, I, I think we both argue that most of the production methods for it are bad, especially if not properly remediated. Um, but if we just focus on Delta 8 itself, if we were allowed to, um, you know, I've had some, some patients that are highly paranoid from Delta nine that can tolerate Delta eight, um, you know, and, uh, it, it could absolutely provide another, another sort of therapeutic dimension. But I think right now it's, you know, how much heptane or hexane is left and, and how, you know, it's just, I don't know. It's, it's not a, it's not a pretty picture, unfortunately. Yeah, so when you speak about the, the gas chromatography and being able to have, I'm, I'm sure it's uh, you know, capillary. And But when you're going back through in that process, are you speaking about um, FID or, or mass spectrometry where you can then go to the NIST database and know exactly what the fragmentation is? Got to be followed by mass spec. So, that, so for those people listening, um, when you, when you do a gas chromatography and you do the mode of, of mass spectrometry that's done afterwards, there is an extensive, very extensive database that allows you to identify clearly the Delta-8 from the Delta-9 based on the fragmentation program. So think of it like a fingerprint. Uh, so, and when he, Dr. Bennett speaks of the uh, nuclear magnetic resonance, again, each one of those carbons has a very specific environment that it's in, and therefore it's able to look at its environment. It knows very clearly which one it is. There is actually a, a good work that was done out of um, 
University of Rochester forensics group, it was a rapid communication that showed that every single commercially that they bought a Delta 8 product, nowhere near had what it had, what was stated in it, and all of them except for one had a significant amount of heavy metals still residually in that mixture. And I think that that's what you're speaking to. Yeah. As, so, an example. as an example, but at the same time, if we go into, uh, we'll, we'll take a little deep dive into, into biochemistry and talk about KIs and, uh, and the fact of, of how you know that the Delta eight versus Delta nine and how it is received into a receptor and how much is received. And, and so that, I'm that I'm assuming you're referring to the fact of how the delta eight is um, is brought into those receptors and and activates them. Um, yes, and and prevailing um, understanding now is that that effect is a fraction as intense but parallel to delta nine. I'm not sure if that's true. Um, whether you know that's folklore whether that's based on the scant amount of scientific knowledge that is, that is out there, I'm not sure, um, or a combination they're in, but, but yeah, I mean, that's. So when you, when you speak of that, because I, I read a lot of the, uh, the brochures and the marketing, and, and most of them say that there's an enormous amount of work on, on Delta-8, and I've yet to find it in peer-reviewed journals of the enormous amount. There is work that's done on the very specific enantiomer that I spoke of, not of the other possible ones. Right, right. And I and think then, that that's the part that has to be known by the public. Well, and I mean, that's something that, that people are starting to talk about too, um, in the analytical world, I should say, but, um, wasn't it you the other day that that told me that the that you know we recognize one when it comes to delta nine and the plant uses one when it comes to delta nine and that kind of wasn't that you that said that? Yes, I'm, it probably was. If if it wasn't me, it was a very intelligent person with a high. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, but uh, but yeah. So I mean, you know, this, these these issues of of. Um, of enantiomers are and diastereomers um, are, are, are going to become more of an issue, um, you know, at, 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 as we as we really start proving what what's having what effect. Um, there a, yeah, there was a paper that came out uh, today that I had read, today being June something sixteenth, um, and it spoke about the S and R. Um, I think it was SNR of of uh, limonene. That would it's, make. It's really odd that that was an analogy I was going to go right to. Where the, oh, you work? Go for it. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, it's it's the exact same type of type of thing. I mean, we make we make such a big deal in the in the terpene world about about you know D limonene and you know which exact stereoisomer that we're talking about. Um, you know they're not they're not the same, and and you have your your SNR, you have your your um, what are protein designations? They're eluding me. It'll come to me. But um, but your yeah your 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 DNL is is your is your um, are your proteins? Your sugars have anyway. Edit this part, please. <laughs> we'll we'll do the stop and and restart. Yeah, no, I mean, but but. But um, yeah, for some reason, I, I can't think at the moment, so. Cool. But yeah, so we'll do a quick break. I'll count to three. There you go. When I'm looking at the designation of the enantiomers, there is well-documented research on the terpenes that show whether anti-inflammatory or looking outside of the biofilm of what effect it has between what is called S and R. So that's a rotation of light around a molecule and they're very distinct. And so you not only have that work and it shows a very distinct level of which one 
attacks the biofilm. And so that's important through metabolism. And you also have the work that was done over at the Emerald Conference by, uh, I forget who actually showed that work. And that was as the cannabis plant makes the terpenes, it makes a very specific enantiomer and rotation of light of those terpenes. And so if you just add, you know, synthetic terpene, it had better be the right one because one has absolutely no effect. And the other one does have an effect on anti-inflammatory in combination with the cannabinoids or on its own. And so you have a lot of, a lot of work that's done on that throughout the, throughout the years. And so sometimes we just get carried away with, oh, well, it's, you know, I've got D-limine and I'm keeping my terpenes, but they rearrange very quickly. Oh, I mean, you know, for people that, for people that say they want to make stable products like capsules and still have terpenes in them, um, you know, they're not the same a week from now, a month from now, a year from now. And it's a, a very dynamic pool of, of molecules that everybody's trying to pin down profiles of. So looking at all that and then looking at some of the, the different designations in it, and then and then in your experience or, or your your crystal ball in front of you, where do you see that where do you see the marketplace going in the next three years? I'll make it just three years. You say the marketplace, are we talking about the, the marketplace of synthetic cannabinoids? You know, I, I did I did make that a huge uh, a big huge hole. So I will um, I will uh, go back through and and uh, and uh, refocus it. So if I was um, looking at the marketplace from the biomass to the traditional route of using those natural products without doing further synthetic, I would separate it in into that first before I'd head towards the second. So your next step would be to figure out all these, these specific enantiomeric ratios of, of cannabinoids, for example. From the natural plant. Right. Through either gene splicing or some other mode of, of just natural work. Yeah, you know, I, it would, it's interesting because if you would have asked me this question five years ago, I would have thought that there would be a wealth of, of information by now. Um, we've got a few groups doing sequencing. Um, we probably both know who they are. Um, and you just, it's just not, it's not as evolved as I know I would hope. I, I think you and I probably agree on that. Um, there's a lot of science here both from an analytical perspective as well as an applications perspective, disease states. And I feel like we're kind of floundering. Um, I feel like there's not a lot of, well, there's, there isn't emphasis put on this by the government, right? It's still illegal federally and all these other challenges and hurdles. Um, but I think that universities would have a field day. I mean, I did high throughput screens to come up with compounds that might have an effect in Alzheimer's disease, right? Thousands and thousands of thousands. So to have the flip side and have a plant that has hundreds of hits and just figuring out where and how those, those, those work physiologically is, is quite exciting. But most people need to make money. Um, and I don't think that's a bad thing. And they just, whether it's the, the med, the medical or the recreational or both of the local municipality, they, they need to make money and start covering overhead and, and this whole, what does it all mean, um, kind of goes by the wayside. Oh, I like the, uh, I like the way you phrased the question. I'm going to have to remember that and, uh, and not give you credit. The, uh, so as I look at, as I look at that, if I was to ask myself that question of five years ago, if someone had asked me that question, 
what would my have been my answer? And I, I can look back and know what my answer was because I wrote so many articles on it. But asking myself that question today by the pivot of where the industry is gone was not what I anticipated. I was not anticipating this type of, of, uh, of turn in the road. But now that I have this turn in the road, now I had to figure out what to do with this turn in the road. Because before then, if people look up the molecules and they think that it hasn't been synthesized, then they have to look up AM for Alexander Smith. Uh, Macrionis, they have to look up, you know, RH for for Hoffman, they have to look at HU for Hebrew University, and some of the other ones where they were really looking for being able to move the molecules where it was going, what it was doing, and its potency. Mm -hmm. And then from there, versus the natural product. So in my opinion is the following, and then I'll ask for your response. And so I believe the future would be towards products that are behind the pharmaceutical counter. Um, ones that need a prescription. And then I would see some in front of the counter that would be more natural products and formulations. Yeah, I, I, so I, I see the same, and I think it's really going to be determined by the market. Um, I think with federal legalization, which I do think will happen at one point in time, I think all of these spinoff molecules that we're discussing, Delta, Delta 10, Delta 8, I think a lot of the HAC, a lot of these will go by the wayside if people just have regular access to the naturally occurring cannabinoids. Um, so I think I think that's that's definitely the direction I see things going. Um, I have another question. Yep. So, so I will say uh, along the line, as as you're doing the distillation, and you're seeing that process in place and knowing what other factors can, are you are you looking into inline or or at line um, analyses? Um. No, and I'm going to bookmark that and go back um, because um, what you were talking about was um, what we expect to see in five years, and I, I, I had a good answer about the markets that drive, that drive these things. I think what I see as a product development expert is that a patch is going to be probably one of your least abusable forms. Uh, it's not going to smell like cannabis. It's, it's the furthest removed. I think capsules, I mean, things that are medically recognized, metered dose inhalers, those are going to be things that are maybe even injectables that'll be available by prescription. And then I think, like I said before, since all these things are available, sort of, I think there'll be a, another over the counter where you might have a natural health product that has some ibuprofen and some CBD and THC mix. I think that's a direction that we will see things go where things are standardized and still at GMP, good manufacturing practices for, for production, uh, but, but not quite proven like pharmaceuticals. And then I still think we're gonna see, you know, flour and concentrates and things that the market likes to see and will continue. Um, so I, you know, I, I think that we, we might sort of be at the, the apex of product diversity I think that we'll see some some refinement and some product validation, uh, and as you indicated, that would be done historically by the pharmaceutical companies. And those are and those are not quick. No. No, and they're billions of dollars, and they're they're ten years. So, in between that lapse of five to ten years of billions of dollars and and lots of um, different uh, phases of that work, we're still going to have the natural components. I also um, have one, one more question, then I'll, I'll set you free. And, uh, oh. and that is, we're, we're now looking at a plant that has been, that is nowhere near the plant that people speak of that was used for 10,000 years. 
So when people speak of, well, they've used this plant for 10,000 years, that's why we know it's safe. Um, I'm thinking that that isn't the same plant <laughs> that we have out there today. And so have you have you looked at any uh, any work on on some of the indigenous plants or anything that's that's that was from before all of this uh, changes? I'll, I'll I'll call it from the uh, I'll call it from the '60s or maybe even the '50s. People started to really enhance the plant more and more towards the THC or towards other. Um, uh, I'll call so there's it. A, there's evidence of of like shamans in various places being dug up with high potency cannabis. Um, for me as a biologist, a species is defined by an interbreeding population. And if you put hemp and THC cannabis right next to each other, they breed. So cannabis sativa describes all of the same plant. What we're doing is selectively breeding certain characteristics, um, ideally. Um, so, you know, I think that it is it is different in the sense that we've selectively bred, just like dogs are different. Um, but I, I I don't know that necessarily that having a larger percentage of THC is going to be problematic. Um, maybe because people will just use less of it. So I, I you know I don't I don't really know that there's a direct correlation. I think that we have a history, we have a tendency to, to think of drugs of abuse and to think of, of this being on that, that category. I, I think cannabis is very different. Um, we're not rapidly upregulating more and more and more CB1 and CB2 receptors because its effects are felt through several, several different receptor networks. So it's, it's not as simplistic as that. Um, so I think that that, 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 that debate could, could, could go both ways. Yeah, so I think um, so. If I look at uh, one, I, I did I did have one more question that came from that one, and that is, I like the dog analogy. I love analogies, but when I'm looking at that analogy, do you have a good analogy for how the the THC or THCA or CBD or or any of the other cannabinoids, for example, and they're they're not the call it the endocannabinoids for for lack of a better nomenclature, it seems to work. How, I, I've been battling for a, a nice analogy that explains the fact that the THC doesn't really have an effect on inflammation. It's what the receptor then goes off and makes. Well, it seems from my, from my understanding, CBD has more of an effect on inflammation. Um, you know, THC is a agonist, it activates CB1 and CB2 receptors. CBD seems to be a reverse agonist, possibly an antagonist in certain circumstances. So that's, you know, you have this sort of on and off effect. But, you know, we have many receptor networks. Uh, I think CBD is a, a dopamine agonist. I think that both THC and CBD have interplay with the serotonin system. Um, there's just, it's, it's, it's a little more complicated than just this drug, this neurotransmitter, uh, system. And, and I, I, you know, so I, I just, I hesitate in that regard because I, I think we still have a lot to learn. There's no question that dopamine's involved, right. Or people wouldn't enjoy it and have euphoric experiences and, um, that kind of thing. Um, so I just, you know, but I, I, I I also think, you know, we have in our livers, we have alcohol dehydrogenase, right? And that, that breaks down alcohol. And, you know, why do we just conveniently have that? Well, I mean, I think historically we ate more and more fermented fruit. We didn't have access to the freshest. Maybe if you believe in the hunter gatherers, you know, men have twice the alcohol dehydrogenase, perhaps they were out hunting and they got fermented fruit when they got back to the, to, to the home. Um, but, you know, and then you have a lot of alcohol being bad, right? And so I, I think there is a case for, hey, now we've got a bunch of THC that exceeds our sort of natural balance. But I also think that if that were the case, you know, this has been going on now illegally for a long time and now legally for a long time. And I, I feel like they're stretching to find 
cases to write about. Oh, this kid went to the hospital. It's like, well, his parents gave him their gummies or, you know, they left them out. I mean, I just, and, and, and they generally put activated charcoal and maybe pump a stomach and watch them for 12 hours. And then they send them home with a couple bags of chips. I mean, I'm not trying to be insensitive. I'm not trying to be insensitive at all, but I, I, you know, no one's died and they've really tried to make these things look terrible. So um, it doesn't make me think that, that the higher potency is really going to be a problem because higher potency also means higher purity. And to go full circle to what we're talking about, we've got tons of impurities and things that we don't want in these, in these, in these compounds. So I don't view having pure THC as evil, right? I think that the potency purity argument is, is, is a, a subtle, but, but big one. Yeah. Thank you. So if you had any, uh, one final thought to, uh, to leave our enthralled audience with and, uh, and, and what you would want to leave as a message today for the people, what would it be? And you can choose the people. Um, well, you know, I mean, I, I want to, I guess, say something a little bit more general than esoteric. Um, but, you know, when it comes to, to, to cannabis, um, when it comes to anything in science, um, we're figuring it out is perfectly fine. In fact, it gives people like you and me jobs. Um, but at the same time, sorry, these lights keep going off. But at the same time, you know, I, I really would like to have some more concrete uh, leg, you know, ground to stand on, I think, with, with, with some of these things. I mean, does THCV affect appetite? Does CBN uh, make you tired. It's just, I, I feel like we're in a world of, of folklore. Um, so, you know, I wrote an article once for terpenes and testing about um, understanding the quality of what you're reading. And I think that's a good take home is that you and I are both scientists and people can, you and I can go on with acronyms and big words and things that we have to. Um, but for anybody to understand how valuable something they read, whether it be COVID or cannabis, um, you know, anything that's in the New York Times that mentions something about a group doing something, they're gonna cite the group. Then you can take that, take those names, put them in Google Scholar, pull the article. You don't understand a word of it, that's fine. Look at how many citations it has, Google the impact factor of the journal um, and, and really determine you know, how, how popular or how well liked that science is and how relied upon it is, um, even if you don't understand any of the words. And so I think that while, you know, everyone is, you know, you and I were scientists before it was cool, right? I always say that because, um, you know, it's, it, the reality of this is that, you know, it does take a village to get the analytics right in order to, to do proper clinical trials and, you know, the, the fact that we're talking about different molecules or different states of energy of the same molecule is, is highly relevant. And, and um, we can't just be saying we know all this stuff when we don't even know exactly what we have in our hands, even when we think we have pure molecule. And so um, I just think people should, should be open-minded to the anecdotal evidence because that's really something we're relying on heavily. Um, and I think people should be patient with the, the clinical. And I think people should, should have more, more faith in the intermediate science. Um, how cells, primary cells respond or how mice respond. I mean, we're 65% we're biosimilar to bananas. So I guarantee <laughs> giving, giving a bunch of rats uh, a cannabis product, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna learn some things about, about ourselves. And, I think that before we do all these expensive clinical trials, I think that we focus on, you know, smaller step science. And I think that that can be an innovative you know, facet for people doing product development. But um, yeah, it was a little long-winded. You'll probably edit some of that, but that's my closing thought. No, that was a, that was a good closing thought. And I think that that's uh, I appreciate your time and all the, you know, the time we've had and, all the other outside discussions we've had at different times, walking down a hallway going, 
oh, I didn't know you were coming. I, and uh, and those are the things that uh, that bring us to uh, to. It, it doesn't matter what the opinions are. I mean, it really goes back down to facts. It's two plus two equals four, and you're not arguing about two plus two equals five. No, and I think that you and I have always had a lot of a lot of fun having different perspectives on things, um, and remaining open minded because science is. Oh, shit! You're right. I didn't think of that. You know, I mean, it's it's not it's not about about ego or anything like that, and. And it's also, you know, it's been nice, John, because as you know, it's, it's, it's for scientists kind of lonely in this space. And, uh, and I'm surprised to say, because now there's PhD programs for what we're doing, but I, I, I don't see a lot of people lining up to, 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 be, uh, to be on podcasts, I guess, and, and talk about their opinions and their experiences. Well, I appreciate the time. All right, have a great day. Oh, we'll catch you do the same the next conference. Absolutely. We'll bump into each other. Thanks, John. Bye. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.